My work on black holes began with a eureka moment, a few days after the birth of my daughter, Lucy. The fact that I used to think that information was destroyed in black holes was my biggest blunder. Well, at least it was my biggest blunder in science. More recently, I wrote a new book, The Grand Design, with Leonard Mlodinov, to try to address a few issues left unresolved in a brief history. You see the laws of science describe how the universe behaves, but to understand the universe at the deepest level, we also need to understand why. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why do we exist? Why this particular set of laws, and not some other? The fact that we humans, who are ourselves mere collections of fundamental particles of nature, have been able to come this close to an understanding of the laws governing us and our universe is a great triumph. I want to share my excitement and enthusiasm about this quest. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and hold on to that childlike wonder about what makes the universe exist. Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of astronomy and cosmology from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. On the opening page of The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking's 2010 co-authored book with Dr. Leonard Mlodinow, the authors tell us that, quote, philosophy is dead, end quote, and has been surpassed by the scientists, particularly the physicists, who, quote, have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge, end quote. In a chapter in the same book entitled, quote, The Apparent Miracle, end quote, the authors note that, quote, the discovery relatively recently of the extreme fine-tuning of so many of the laws of nature could lead at least some of us back to the old idea that this grand design is the work of some grand designer. That type of idea is called intelligent design with the unstated but implied understanding that the designer is God. That is not the answer of modern science, end quote. Thank you. 
Hawking had come to believe that science could finally, quote, explain the fine-tuning of the physical law without the need for a benevolent creator who made the universe for our benefit, end quote. As we heard last week, Dr. Hawking's idea of God is merely as an explanation for the origin of the universe, an explanation that science has since replaced. But this idea shows us that philosophy really isn't as dead as Hawking believed, as he is employing it here regarding the nature of what an explanation really is. Consider, if I ask, quote, why is there a cup of coffee on the table rather than nothing at all, end quote, there are at least two very reasonable explanations for the existence of the coffee. One could be a series of technical explanations about how coffee machines work, how coffee grows, how porcelain or ceramic cups are made, etc. Another explanation could be simply, quote, your spouse made it for you because she loves you, end quote. The latter explanation doesn't cancel out the former and vice versa. In the simplest of terms, nothing in Dr. Hawking's scientific and technical explanations for the origin and fine-tuning of our universe actually conclusively does away with God as an ultimate explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. The God of the Bible, of course, is far more than just an explanation for the origin of the universe. And the universe was not designed primarily for us. As the Apostle Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians, God the Father, quote, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything." End quote. The Lord Jesus Christ is far beyond a mere explanation for the cosmos. He is Lord and God incarnate, the Savior of mankind, the Alpha and Omega, the bright and morning star, the light of the world, the star of Jacob, our sun and shield, in whom we live and move and have our being. This is a far cry from the God frequently mentioned in Dr. Hawking's writings. On part two of our conversation with David Hutchings and David Wilkinson, we further unpack what Dr. Hawking thought about God and about how there is nothing in any of his science that shows philosophy to have died or that God does not exist. To think that science has replaced God is to hold to false concepts and false ideas about both science and the Lord of the universe. David Hutchings.
but but what he decides to do is say well look you know in if i do this if i formulate this this regime of imaginary time and i have a space only universe then the universe doesn't need a creator he says but that's not clear thinking you know we can go all the way back to leibniz you know 400 years before hawking um and uh, and say well the question was why is there something rather than nothing that, that was the question so if you've got a space only universe that question hasn't gone away the question is why is there a space only universe rather than nothing right you have uh with leibniz you have the uh, i think it's leibniz the principle of sufficient reason um you may have thought you've done in other words as i was reading about this this imaginary time and i, I think the the no boundary here um, mm-hmm. that, that it seems that as though Hawking has placed a deistic God behind the temple veil again. In other words, he's pulled the curtains yes. over God and closed his eyes and said, God's not there. Um, but as you said, David, uh, a little bit ago, that, that, that uh, Hawking is, is not really dealing with the God of the Bible. So there's this... No, I think that's right on both counts, both of what, what you've both said, just to unite them. So... Um, uh, Hawking is uh, simply defining God as creator in a deistic way. Mm. He's not understanding that uh, if you say that the universe emerges through a quantum fluctuation, which is one of his, as Dave rightly says, his arbitrary suggestions, mm-hmm. you're still left with the big question of where does quantum theory itself come from? Yes. Where do the laws of physics come from? Now, science, Physicists, as we've said, are fascinated by the laws of physics, but you have to assume that they're there. Physics itself doesn't tell you where the laws themselves come from. That's a metaphysical question. Where mm-hmm. do the laws come from? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that Christians want to say, I think, to Professor Hawking uh, is, um, well, there's something about where do the laws of physics themselves come from, even if your particular suggestion works. I think the second thing then is that the God of the Bible is the God who is not proved through uh, arguments from human reason. But ultimately, the God of Christianity is encountered by this God revealing himself within the space-time history of the universe. Now, as Dave again said earlier, uh, Hawking never engaged with any of the claims Uh, that actually at the heart of Christian faith, which are uh, that God has spoken of himself in many and various ways, but supremely in his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. And that's where, for me as a Christian, is the heart of my faith. It's not because I look at the early universe and I'm convinced that there is an argument for a creator. Mm -hmm. Even if I was, I would know nothing about the nature of that creator. Right. I only know that the creator exists and that this creator is a God of justice and mercy and love yeah. because he has spoken of himself by becoming yes. a human being and living amongst yes. us. Yes. And um, that's why we get a little bit of chance right at the end of the book to say, um, why Jesus? Why is Jesus so important to us right. as Christians in a right. way that he, he wasn't engaged with by well, Professor in- Hawkins? Two, I think that uh, you, I think it was a a quote from Don Page that you had included Mm. about reasoning from fine tuning to God 
and rather it seems like classical Christian Christ-centered theology is reasoning from Christ to the universe. It would seem that that's that right. Be, uh, as 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 Hawking does in himself, he kind of does a reverse time causality. I think you've explained a little bit about how he goes from here backwards in order to try to define a, a unique kind of causality. But for the Christian, we can begin with Jesus and his revelation to us and, and, and go from there. Is that how you think that's a healthy way to see things in this science? Well, that's, that certainly was the case for me in becoming a Christian myself. Hmm. I became a Christian at the age of 17, uh, having really, um, well, I mean, Three things were important for me. The first was I fell desperately in love with a girl who went along to the local church. <laughs> and so I started to go to that church because, and I found amongst the Christian young people something really quite different. Yeah. The, the second shows just how old I am. Bob Dylan went through his Christian phase, and I was a great Dylan fan. And suddenly I heard about Jesus in a language that was relevant to me. And then third, I read the New Testament for myself. I'd never done that before. Oh. This was the first time I'd done it. Mm-hmm. And that led me to this man, Jesus, who I could only explain as God himself walking the pages of history to a commitment into a personal relationship. And then interesting enough for me, from there, I went and started a physics degree. Mm. And what happened was that I began to see the universe from that perspective of knowing God in Christ. Mm. And so when I saw intelligibility, when I saw fine-tuning, when I saw this experience of awe, when I saw the infinite, the eternal, um, uh, all of that had a natural framework into which to fit. Uh, It made sense from the experience of God in Christ. Um, Now, this isn't always the case. Other people come to faith in different ways. Right. But it does seem to me that um, uh, my role as a Christian is to first and foremost witness to Christ, yeah. to tell other people about Jesus, and then to say, well, how does the rest of the world and our experience of the world fit into this mm-hmm. claim mm-hmm. at the yeah. heart of Christianity? And uh, David, I, 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 I echo your experience. I came to Christ late in life. I was in my mid-20s. I didn't know anything about the Bible or theology or science, really. I was just, uh, uh, I was kind of really wasn't seeking any kind of religious experience or anything, but uh, Jesus's revelation to me through friends and scripture ultimately led me to to who Jesus was. Um, and And as I was reading this, because of the way in which you guys so clearly I've, I mean, I've read a lot of science books in, in preparing for my book that we produced last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love science and astronomy. But but your book was unique among a lot of books that I've read because it made, I mean, I'm familiar with this stuff to some degree. I'm a layperson, but yeah. you really made the ideas come to life uh, in a very lucid way that that helped me to go, oh, yeah. I mean, I knew that, but now I kind of, it, it, it crystallized. And I want to get your feedback on something that hit me this morning as I'm reading. Um, Between the concepts of light as a wave and a particle, or the concept of uh, general general relativity and quantum mechanics, um, it was the description, and I don't know which of you wrote this, but it was beautiful. It was the description of the quantum level having the three fundamental forces, right? You have the uh, weak, electromagnetic and the strong 
nuclear at the quantum level, right? But then you back out and then what do you have? You have the excluded weakest force in the universe that's not a part of the little triune, you know, quantum reality. You have gravity. And it immediately, because of the lucidity of your, your metaphor, I was like, this is like Jesus. Because as a man, he's extremely weak like we are. But as God, he's triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, inseparable, you know. And, and trying to bring these two natures together is like Nicaea. So it's like, it's, it's like a cosmological Nicaea of trying to, 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 uh, to, to bring together these two natures that seem to be inexplicably separate, but yet they work right? That they're there. Is that, is that too much metaphor there? Is that, or, or do you think that's, that's, I'm onto something? No, I think uh, John Polkinghorne will often say that science does gives you metaphors for theological imagination. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and so as long as with any metaphors or models, they're constrained by the data theologically that are given to us in scripture. Yeah. That's important for us to do. And as long as we recognize that they are metaphors right, and right, models, right. Um, that's entirely right. And I find myself on a number of issues finding insights and metaphors uh, within science which help me to think theologically. That's one of the reasons that, as a Christian, I want to take science seriously. Yes. Um, I, now, I, I think as long as, as long as I'm cautious about those metaphors Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing wrong in them and in fact if we are talking about a a person who is at the heart of creation a god who breathes into creation his very own creativity and extravagance then it wouldn't be surprising would it that there are little pictures Mm -hmm. uh illusions little uh characteristics yes. about the nature of the universe that speak right. of its creator. Romans 1 um, comes to mind. Romans 1. Reflecting and of course, God. that's right. And in, in previous generations, we would have, we would have celebrated uh, seasons, summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon and stars in their courses above, join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love is one of the old hymns. Amen. So there's... I think uh, it's it's a good thing to do for us to reflect upon the physical world uh, and to see uh, metaphors or models which then can be used to help us. Now, Dave's an expert at this because... Well, yeah, it was great in, teaching, in the book. In the book, that's right. too. The book is filled yeah. with these wonderful metaphors. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's that's down to him. And, of course, that's how you teach. That's how you, you help people understand mm-hmm. uh, is that is those pictures, models, and metaphors where right. you transfer sometimes from one subject area to another to say it's a bit like this, right? Right. Or right. think of it in this way, right? It was uh, uh, Werner Heisenberg, uh, who was a contemporary of Niles Bohr, of course you know, um, but he wrote a great, insightful book called Physics and Philosophy. Yes, and his one of his points echoed something that Lewis says. I think it was in the discarded image that we only know our, our knowledge of the universe is only as good as the questions that we ask, which has something to do with the nature of metaphor and language itself. And uh, I just uh, did an interview with Malcolm Guide a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking yes. about Samuel yeah. Taylor Coleridge. Yes. And uh, just what you had said, David, about uh, 
metaphors, uh, you know, stockpiling your metaphors through science. Coleridge would attend chemistry lectures or science lectures. Uh, and people say, well, why would you do that? He says, I'm stockpiling my metaphors about God. So, you know, yes. the, the poetic yes. language, that metaphorical language, the better the metaphor, the closer to the truth that you seem to be. And I, I want to compliment you both on the, on the use of the stories that you set up in the beginning of several of these chapters with John Darwin, uh, with uh, Jim Carrey and uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, these, these absolutely prime your brain to get into what you're about to talk about. And I think that that, you know, we should expect that, I think, as Christians who worship the Logos, who is the Word of God, who spoke, as far as we know, anthropically, creation into existence. And so it makes sense that we're using metaphors to describe the universe. It makes sense that mathematics is a kind of language. It makes sense that uh, that we see the universe as we do as an expression of a of a word of an ontological word oriented being. So, uh, Dave, you want to explain a little bit about how you came up with the metaphors and uh, your experience in the classroom and sure. teaching with metaphors? I, I, so there's a, a theologian who you may have heard of called uh, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright. Yes. Have you, have you come across him? Uh-huh. Uh, he, he says, um, now, most people want to say, well, if you let's ground someone's someone's take on the world is grounded in their worldview. Right. You start off with a worldview. And then from that, you build on top your your beliefs and your practices and, 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 and so on. And that affects your attitudes towards things. And he says, that's wrong. He says, actually, there's a layer below worldview. There's a more fundamental layer. Mm. And that, that layer is the layer of story. Mm. He says, actually, actually, story is the most fundamental unit um, of thought for the human being. And, uh, and he says the that the error that we make sometimes is that we think that the story is stories are for kids. Stories are the weaker substitute for the real thing, which is found in abstract facts. Mm. It says that, that just not is, is that's not the case. Mm. We're driven by, by story fundamentally. And, um, and, and I think that therefore we shouldn't be at all surprised that when Jesus came to tell us the truth uh, about the world, and about himself, and about ourselves. Predominantly, he did it through telling stories. Yes. Jesus, Jesus did not sit down and say, right, um, who wants to sign up to my systematic theology class? <laughs> um, and, uh, and likewise, if you look at the Bible itself, primarily, how does the Bible teach? Primarily. Again, it, it teaches yeah. mostly through narrative, through story. Right. right. And... Uh, and so uh, I remember, I can distinctly remember um, that I, I used to help out a summer camp, a residential summer camp, where you whisk sort of 150 odd teenagers up into the Scottish border towns, um, <laughs> where they, they, uh, some of them have never been away from home before. Mm. They, they do adventure activities all day. They're sleeping in these little log cabins. Um, they're, they're getting bitten to death by midges. They're, they're eating mass catering out of tins, um, and uh, and some of them are homesick, and some of them have got a crush on the person three seats down. And then every night you bundle them into a hall, and you say to some poor sucker, "Right, you've got fifteen minutes to talk to them about God." And, and a lot of these people are unchurched as well. Well, I mean that that is a tough gig, right? Yep. Um, 
And so I did what all responsible adults would do in that sort of situation. I sat at the back um, of the hall. Um, uh, and in the pretense that I was going to keep a careful, watchful eye on everybody. But really, uh, I, I thought I might get the chance to have a little bit of a sleep. And, um, and one particular night, there was a chap who stood up and he's wading through uh, some part of John or something like that. And he's really up against it. And I've got the old 10 second blinks, you know, when, the, <laughs> when you've, you've started to nod off. Yeah. And, then he, and then he said, let me tell you a story. And when he said that, let me tell you a story, um, totally involuntarily, my whole body sort of lurched forwards. Mm. And I was awake and I was awake. And I looked around the hall and everybody else was too. Mm. And I thought, hang on a second, what's just happened? Mm-hmm. and uh and it's that word story and uh and i thought okay if i want to be a teacher and i want to do a decent job of it i gotta harness this power mm. this power of a story um and so when i teach what i try to do is whenever i introduce a new topic um i tell a story mm. uh, and the story is is uh some people might say hey that's the cheap way in but it's not the story mm-hmm. is actually the reality and then what I'm going to go on after that is just tell them a few fine details absolutely, um, and how absolutely. to answer the exam questions. And, uh, and so that's what this book is, is like um, that I've written with David. It's a story book. Um, and that's why I think people can sit down and read it in a couple of hours. Um, and what they'll remember are the stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, one of the really interesting aspects, and I, I want to sort of comfort really your your listenership and say there is nothing in the world of cutting edge quantum cosmology that is any threat to god at all Mm. and yes you may hear quantum cosmologists like stephen hawking and Lawrence krauss and sean carroll saying or linking their work to an absence of god but actually they're wrong and um and i've been thinking about well why does this happen and you mentioned Don Page earlier. So Don Page was a great friend of Stephen Hawking, mm-hmm. a colleague. They wrote multiple papers together. And Don Page is on record defending Stephen Hawking's model for the beginning of the universe, mm-hmm. um, or the lack of beginning, however you want to read it. Uh, he defends it um, in a paper where he puts across seven separate defences uh, for Hawking's model of the universe against attacks that have come from other people. But Don Page is a Christian. Hmm. And, uh, and you think, well, hang on a second. If he is defending the model and he's a Christian, there is clearly nothing in the model that is a problem for Christianity. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way that um, a committed Christian would write in defense of it. But then the second question uh, that arises from that is, well, hang on a second. Why do they disagree on God? Mm. Why, why do Hawking and Page, who are both cosmologists, who both accept the same set of data and who both even support the same model in print, why are they saying, coming to a different conclusion on, on the existence of God? Mm. Uh, and the answer is that it's in the data points that they don't talk about. Mm-hmm. It's the, the data points that aren't in the papers. Mm-hmm. So Hawking 
um, is, for example, does not believe or did not believe that Jesus came back to life. But Page does believe that Jesus came back to life. Mm. Now, that data point uh, changes the way that you interpret the earlier ones mm. or the, the ones in the cosmology, right? And so Hawking's looking for the best possible explanation of a universe in which he already doesn't think that there are miracles. He already doesn't think that Jesus came back to life. Mm-hmm. He's already dismissed those other things. And he's saying, how do I explain the universe without those things in it? And he's stuck, really. That's why he can't come up with anything. Mm-hmm. Age is saying, how do I explain a universe that has all of this cosmological data, but also Jesus came back to life? Mm. And, um, and so uh, I, I think that's really important to tell that story and say what we believe about the universe is, is more than just the science, right? right. There are other, there are other yep. pieces of information as well. And, um, and, you know, one more brief story. When I was first at university, I went around a whole bunch of different churches because I thought I needed to... Um, have some different experiences and I'd only grown up in one church and it was a good idea to um, hear what other people had to say. So I went around a whole bunch of different churches and in one of them, uh, it was in a barn, which perhaps should have been the first warning sign. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was someone playing an accordion and that, that should have been the second warning <laughs> sign. But about halfway through the service, which was um, sort of very, very energetic, they said, if anyone wants more of God, come to the front. And I thought, well, I'm uncomfortable and I feel that this is all very weird, but I do want more of God. So I'll go to the front. And uh, this chap started praying for me at the front. And he said, I'm going to pray for you so that you can speak in tongues. And, um, and I said, that's fine. You know, I, I read about the gift of tongues in the Bible. I believe that there is a gift of tongues. Um, you know, you go for it. And he started praying for me and then he pushed me and uh, he was only about five foot two. So not much happened. Um, but uh, I thought, you know, I thought, well, this, this is, this is odd now. And, uh, and then he said to me, nothing's happening. And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I know that I, I, I'm well aware of that. Um, and, and then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a student. And he said, what are you studying? And I said, I'm studying physics. And then he said, ah, that will be the problem. Oh, dear. Your physics is getting in the way, right? And uh, now, clearly, that is nonsense, right? The idea that the Holy Spirit cannot operate in the life of someone who's studying physics is not true. Mm. But the church, you know, some yeah. elements of the church have bought into this. Mm-hmm. They ha- Their response to... Yeah. Um, to someone like Hawking is to say, well, okay, I'm having nothing to do with science. Then science is the enemy. And that is unacceptable. Uh, And that's why these, uh, these issues of things like Christians burning down the library of Alexandria, when they didn't, uh, it was burnt down 60 years before Jesus was born. So it would have been mighty impressive. They would have had to get their flux (laughs) capacitors out. Um, Time traveling believers. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and the later destruction of the the Serapium, you know, there were no, we don't even know whether there were any books there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these these data points, uh, if the effect of them is to scare the church away from science, 
then those those um, stories need to be pulled apart. They need to have pressure put on yes. them and they need to be shown that they're wrong. Right. And this needs to be included in services on a Sunday. You know, it's great that we're doing this on a podcast, but most people who listen to a podcast like this already have an interest and they already will know quite a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff. Uh, the, the key thing is for stuff like this, the, the true stories, stories to be told in churches yeah. Um, and in Sunday schools and in youth work um, and in Christian schools. You know, the leading communicators of science, this is their, this is their gift, David, to, mm. to, to, mm. to take what is complex. I mean, Sean Carroll's last two books, The Big Picture and Something Deeply Hidden. Uh, you know, he's, he's taken over the helm of science popularizer and he's really intelligent and, mm. and is a gifted writer. Yes. And yeah, he's uh, very good. And uh, as you say, he has a wide audience and yet it's cosmic, what I call cosmic despair. It's mm. just a, a variation on a theme of, um, uh, well, he, he espouses Everett's many worlds. Um, and That's and just says, he doesn't really go into the, to, to the immediate logical implications of there being our doppelgangers out there, but he affirms it. He affirms mm. that. Mm. And so your brain is left spinning. Mm. I'm just a wave. I'm just a, I'm just a wave function detritus you know, um, without any real conceptual idea of what is real. Yeah, you're not even necessarily the same person that started the interview, right? Depending right. on how you interpret right. his, his, um, his, his work. Right. But that's where I think um, theology is missing and is, is apparent by its um, absence. Because yeah. uh, what you can do is theology can inform science. So I could say to Sean Carroll, look... Um, Yes, you're right. Mathematics is the same for all these models, right? Nobody's disputing that. The, the, right. the mathematics is the same for all of the interpretations, but the Christian can rule out the many worlds interpretation. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> and uh, be- because it would mean that there was a world in which Jesus didn't die on the cross. And that's why we wrote, uh, we wrote uh, the story of the cosmos. That was the same, the same aim, Dave. It was yeah. um, uh, a collection of stories. Yeah. In fact, my introduction chapter I tried to squeeze in instead of saying chapter one says this chapter two says this chapter three says this. I tried to squeeze in the whole chapter and tell a story about the chapters in the book. So it's a seamless narrative about what you're about to encounter. I talk about every one of the chapters in my, in my initial introduction, but I don't say chapter one through 13. I tell you a story about how these things, a little pieces of each of the chapters are in that. But I, I agree wholeheartedly with you that, the, that the, the whole reason for my initial comment about Stephen Hawking and attacking time was to sort of dispel and to get into the conversation about how right. physics and science are redemptively useful if you're thinking through the, the, the view of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, who is the word Absolutely. made flesh. Would you say that's accurate, David? Yeah, very much so. And this. You know, when I first became a Christian, the one thing that I remember was at the center of that experience was that simple claim, Jesus is Lord. Now, uh, in a very young and naive way, because I too was a physics student like Dave, it seemed to me that if Jesus was Lord, then that was a universal claim over every part of my life. So it didn't just mean what I did on Sunday. It meant what I did uh, as a student studying the mathematics and the physics on a Monday mm-hmm. morning. What, what does it mean as a disciple of Jesus 
to be a scientist. And what I discovered um, was, first of all, there were many other scientists who were proclaiming Jesus was Lord. Some of them were doing it quietly. Uh, some of them weren't getting the media attention that uh, Professor Hawking or uh, Lawrence Krauss were getting. Uh, but they were doing it in day-by-day faithfulness. And, and also I found that my faith often posed difficult questions to my science. There are still many questions I don't have the answer to. And my science posed sometimes difficult questions to my faith, many of which I still don't have answers mm. to. But at the end of the day, those questions were fruitful, both to my excitement with science and to my excitement with Christian faith. Mm. And I still find them tremendously exciting and fruitful, uh, uh, even at the very old age, which Dave keeps reminding <laughs> me of that I've got to now. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still fascinated, both with science and with Christian mm. faith. And the ability that they have to talk to each other in a way that is fruitful, that actually liberates the Spirit's mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. rather than the rather than well, and I think it. the as the Hebrew Scriptures do, and in, in so many of the parallel parallelisms that you find, um, Psalm nineteen one: the heavens declare the glory of God; the skies or the firmament uh, proclaims His handiwork. So you have a parallelism yes. of the glory of God and handiwork. And, and, and these things invite further inquiry. They're not irreconcilably contradictory, but as you say, they, they, they invite questions and bring us further into the heart of what it means to what, what is the heart of reality, the heart of who God is. And I think that the, the universe is kind of like a Hebrew parallelism that draws us in and makes us ask the questions. Like uh, David in Psalm 8, when I look at the moon and the stars, the work of your fingers what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? If you go out to a dark sky anywhere uh, and you stand under the canopy of thousands of stars uh, and, and you can clearly see the Milky Way, uh, you start to ask these very profound questions. It's almost like it's built into the fabric of, of space and time uh, that we begin this, this interrogation of not only what's above us, but, but what is within us. Who am I? in the midst of all of this vastness. And of course, our, our, our age now is dominated by this idea of the, the, Copernican, uh, the Copernican myth, not that Copernican was mythical, but what followed in the wake of Copernicanism was this idea that we are insignificant. And I think there is nothing further, there's no more cognitive dissidence going on now in our culture than there is this idea that I know intuitively I'm not insignificant, but yet I'm being told by mm. the brightest minds that I am. And, uh, you know, this all kind of really came home in, in February of 1990. I'm sure you're familiar with the pale blue dot and uh, Carl Sagan's famous rumination over uh, what's going on on this pale blue dot. You know, we are a speck, a, a, a mote of dust in a sunbeam. Um, and, and this myth over and over again that is repeated from science, the universe doesn't care. The universe hates us. The universe is violent. The universe is cold. The universe is empty. The universe is deadly. Uh, and we're just a floating speck of, of, of biological film. And, and this is coming over and over again from the brightest minds. This is what's being presented to us. This is our story of the modern world sans God. And uh, so we're sort of bereft. And, 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 and that's key. And it's, you know, as Dave, as Dave said, if you neglect the data point of Jesus, then I, actually that's where you end mm-hmm. up. 
uh, human beings are special, not because we're at the center of the right. universe um, or because uh, we understand everything. Human beings are special because of the gift of relationship. That's, that's key to the Christian worldview and actually um, allowed Christians to move beyond the Aristotelian mm-hmm. universe where we were at the center of everything. Mm-hmm because of that fundamental theological understanding that for Christians, you are special by the nature of gifted relationship. Mm. So when we sit down as a family for, for dinner, I don't need to sit at the head of the table to feel special. Mm. I know that I'm special because I have a relationship of love with uh, all of the other people yeah. around the table. I don't need to be in a specific place. Right. And so human beings uh, a special, and this is an important point, not just in terms of the pale blue dot, but also in terms of Sagan's other interests, which is uh, which were in mm-hmm. SETI, and whether at some stage we do discover life elsewhere in the universe. And some Christians think to themselves, "Oh, well, this undercuts human uniqueness." No, of course no. it doesn't. We are special and unique because we are loved by God, and we've seen that in Jesus right. Christ. We don't have to be uh, alone. We don't have to be at the center of everything mm. to be special. We're special because of this gift of relationship, this promise of love that we see in Jesus. Did you, either of you know this? I learned this from Michael Ward. This is not an original thought of mine, but the first time, and, and I think Michael talks about this in our book, the first time that the concept that we know today is space or empty space uh, was, as far as I understand, Michael what uh, came from Milton's Satan, the, the idea of empty space. Yeah, no it's, it's really interesting, this, this concept of space and emptiness versus, and Michael has a whole chapter in our book about this general concept, in, in, and it's Lewis's concept, really, the idea of the, the yes. modern conception of space versus the ancient conception of the heavens. One is like a storage facility, yes. uh, the other that has mostly nothing in it, and the other is filled with life, and anthropic and, and meaning and purpose and beauty and wonder. And, uh, and, and just, just the repeated idea that everything above us is space is cold is dead is empty just seems so counterintuitive to, to what happens to each one of us when we look up at the universe or we consider the heavens, you know, that, that there seems to be an intrinsic sense that, as I like to say that Dante was probably, spot on when he concluded uh, the Paradiso and said, it is love that moves the sun and other stars, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I'm really on the same page as this. I just feel um, I need to say, um, just for those who are listening, who may be scientists themselves, that of course, the experience of science is not always awe and wonder. Most of science is frustrating, tedium, boring. Um, it's about research councils who don't give you enough money. <laughs> it's about students who don't do what that you tell right. them to do. It's about experiments that don't work. It's about going to a telescope and finding that there's clouds in the <laughs> sky. Yeah, um, It's about puzzling over infinities. Right. But there are, as you've rightly said, within all of that, within the reality of science, those wow moments mm. those core look at that moments mm. those i never thought it would be as beautiful mm. as that either in terms of the heavens or in terms of the equations and um i think um, 
I think that's right. And part of, I think, our passion for science is about sharing and commentating on those mm-hmm. wow moments, mm-hmm. those through the telling of stories. Well, I think it's important. And that saying, the, the fact yeah. that what you point out there isn't just applicable for the scientist. Of course, there's a lot of trench work in everything that we do, teaching, research, uh, scientific investigation, whether you're a philosopher or, you know, you work at a bank or whatever, that you, you go through the daily drudgeries. But when you begin to recognize the creator of the universe and his love for you and what he has done for you, then life sort of becomes, and this was a transformative moment in my own Christian faith, because I thought it was a matter of Sunday obligatory sort of works oriented, uh, dutiful, obligatory sort of religious things that one did because I was an adult convert. I didn't really know. And I really wasn't discipled very well, but then it was Luther's theology of, of work and vocation that really sort of freed me up to the idea that of of what Paul is talking about in first Corinthians 10 31, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And so that sort of lit me on this, you know, I I love the stars as a kid, but what better reflection visibly do we have than of God's glory? Uh, we are on this little cleft of a rock, like Exodus 33, in which God ha- God's hand has placed us, and he is allowing his glory to pass us by day after day and night after night. And uh, one of our scientists that we, we have in the book, uh, we quoted him, He's, he didn't write a chapter, was a, was a Hubble Space Telescope scientist, David. And just to reaffirm what you had just said, uh, he, he expressed to us in, in, in working with us that, that there's a lot of drudgery working at Hubble. (laughs) It's not all beautiful pictures that you see in a coffee table book. That's the end result of a lot of drudgery of telescope time of combining images and, you know, having committee meetings and lack of money and all this stuff. So, uh, but I think it's applicable to everything that we do in our day-to-day lives. Yes. Well, I, I need to say at this point, uh, and I'm afraid that the drudgery is calling me and uh, I still have some (laughs) some admin to do this evening which you got uh, i'll need to I, I i'm very happy to leave you and dave to continue uh talking about such things while i go back to a document that needs my attention all right david uh, so if you'll forgive me i'm going to leave it and say thank you so much i really enjoyed this absolutely david take care my friend. okay bye-bye god bless you man yeah what, what i would say is i think there is a pastoral responsibility here um that it if you're going to put it into the public sphere that science has declared that we are not special and that science has declared or proven that we are insignificant, um, then you've got to acknowledge the potential effects of saying that. Mm. And um, I don't know whether it's the same in the States, but the main, the main cause of death for uh, men under the age of 40 in the UK is suicide. It's pretty big here too, Dave. I mean, it's really, yeah. it's, it's sad. It's about 40,000 people a year in the U.S. as far as yeah. the current statistics so we, that I know. We, we have a very strange setup at the minute where we tell everybody that they're special. We tell everyone that they can be whatever they want to be, um, that they should chase every dream. But we simultaneously tell them that they are flukes, cosmic flukes, that there's no purpose, um, for them for their being here that they are insignificant in a lonely and empty universe and then we wonder why mental health statistics are the worst they've ever been Mm. um and when you add in the fact that actually these assertions are being made without any evidence at all 
Mm. Um, that's even more serious. And when you also realize that the people making these claims have not done even the most basic historical research, it gets, um, you know, it actually becomes something where I think someone could say, well, you, you are causing major mental health issues and what you're saying is false and you haven't actually done followed due process to make sure you're right. Mm. Uh, it's potentially quite a serious issue. And, um, if you go back to the time of Copernicus, there was nobody who thought that the, that it was special that the earth was in the center. Right. That's, that that is a complete, uh, that's a complete myth Mm -hmm. that actually the, the whole point was, um, that the further out you went, the better it got. Mm-hmm. The, the, the earth in the center was the fallen, broken, damaged. Um, uh, it, was, it was the most horrible place in the universe. Well, I have, a, I have a great pictorial representation of that in my mind. It hit home when I was doing my research for my master's thesis. That you have to understand like 15th, 16th, 17th century uh, Europe where you would be at a second or third floor window in a city somewhere, London, say, or France. And somebody would, you'd be, there'd be a street below you and windows above you could throw their chamber pots out of the window. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's a story about one of the French Kings. I don't know which Lewis it was who got, who got struck by the outpouring of somebody's chamber pot, went upstairs to find out who it was, uh, found out the gentleman was a student and then forgave him and gave him a scholarship. But to your point, the earth was sort of a dumping point of all the, the cosmic detritus that was mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. If you look at the Dantean model, right. Uh, the yeah. Empyrean is, is the creme de la creme of, of the cosmos, getting out to that outer layer of the celestial realm. Yeah. That's, that's all correct. And when Galileo realizes that uh, his model is going to put the Earth somewhere that isn't at the center, he actually writes that he's overjoyed at this because no longer is the Earth the, the sump where the universe's filth and ephemera collect. Yes. So, so it's, it's historically inaccurate. Um, it, it is pastorally dangerous, mm. um, and uh, and it's and it has no scientific backing. Right, right. So, so uh, you know, those three things are, are very serious. Yeah, and um, absolutely. I, I think we've got to be careful with this stuff. They're, these people have got a huge audience, and not only that. Um, if you if your interpretational lens is different, you can flip the whole thing on its head. You can say, hang on a second, did you know that if the universe was smaller, we wouldn't be here? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, uh, if there were fewer dimensions or more dimensions, we wouldn't be here. Mm. In fact, the more we find out about this universe, the more it seems that it was designed specifically with us in mind. Mm. And so when you look out at the vastness of the universe and you watch these videos of, did you know this star's bigger than this one? And look how far out you have to get to get to the next galaxy. Um, if you switch your interpretational lens from the, the sort of cold-hearted, atheistic, purposeless, empty universe one, but you show the exact same video clip and you say, did you know that if the gaps between the galaxies weren't this big, you wouldn't be here? Did you know that all this vastness is for you? Did mm. you know that your father made this mm. for you? And this is a declaration 
of his power and of his love and of his attention to detail and of your significance. Now, that is all exactly the same science. There's absolutely no difference in the science whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The difference is in the interpretational lens that you put on it. And so in my classroom, when we talk about how big space is, I say to them, and if, if it wasn't like this, you wouldn't be here. Mm. Doesn't that make you feel pretty special? And, uh, and then you see them come live. That's you wonderful. see their eyes, you see their eyes light up. That's now wonderful. I'm teaching exactly the same syllabus. I'm teaching exactly the same physics, but I'm telling them a different story. Yeah. And, uh, and a story ultimately for those who want to ask more questions and, uh, want to come along to the Bible study that I, I run at the school. Um, you know, I can tell them this is, this is what Jesus has done for you. And this is for Jesus. Amen. Um, it's, uh, as uh, Colossians says, it is by him and for him all for, for, yeah. for his glory. And we participate in that glory. And, uh, yeah. what you say, David remind Dave reminds me of, uh, uh, Mary Shelley and her, her, I know she's, uh, the, the, the book Frankenstein, uh, and and the idea, the whole the whole idea, the question there is, what is the creator's responsibility to the creation? And to some degree, I think, when you have these physicists that have really and essentially constructed an alternative universe, and then tried to put human beings within that universe, they ultimately are responsible, I would say, for the the kind of meta narratives that they're offering. They have created, in some sense, uh, Frankenstein's. Because really, that's the whole creature's dilemma once he becomes conscious, conscious is, uh, well, what am I? Well, where am I? Who am I? Who, who is my creator? What do I do? And he goes on a rampage because really, it's Dr. Frankenstein doesn't seem to, he seems to abdicate responsibility for what he's done. But I think the same idea holds that when you create a, a cosmos that is void of hope and void of love and void of purpose and void of telos, and, uh, and human beings and our ontology is, is, is an accidental amalgam of, of atoms, as Bertrand Russell said. Uh, you are creating something that is nearly impossible for people to bear. Uh, and I think it was uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the late Christian apologist, who said, a man cannot make a universe and live in it. <laughs> and uh, I think what you're saying attests to that, uh, that there's absolutely this need. You know, and sometimes we play around with, this, with these arguments about cosmology and design and things, but we don't realize, and I, I appreciate you emphasizing it, we don't realize the human toll that these meta narratives are taking on people. And I think they have a great deal to do with the increasing rate of despair and suicide that we have in our culture today. Yes, uh, you are right. And I, and I see it happening. I see it happening um, to our to our students. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you and uh, uh, it's been great and be safe and blessings on your family and your children and your ministry and what you do. It is so absolutely critically important, Dave, to be doing what you're doing. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. (laughs) No worries, man. God bless you. Have a good afternoon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Hawking certainly got at least one thing correct about how we should go about understanding the universe. Try to make sense of what you see and hold onto that childlike wonder about what makes the universe exist. We must cultivate childlike wonder and humility 
as Jesus says in the 18th chapter of Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of the heavens. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of those little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. As David Hutchings noted in our discussion, there exists a pastoral responsibility for telling people that God does not exist, for opining about our cosmic insignificance, that our lives have no ultimate meaning or purpose, and that we are mere accidental collocations of atoms. Our concept of the cosmos does indeed impact the way we see ourselves and how we live our lives. Either the vastness of the universe is all just happenstance, and we are meaningless biological film, or the universe is the work of the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, created for his glory, given to us as a gift of his love for us to explore and enjoy. As King David says in Psalm 8, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. End quote. 